welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is August 14th, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, But Even You Cannot Avoid Pressure, Intensive Care Bundle with Blood Pressure Reduction in Acute Cerebral Hemorrhage, Interact 3. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Mike Balacci. He is a professor of emergency medicine for Northeastern Ohio Medical University and an adjunct clinical professor of emergency medicine for the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. He's been a program director for two EM residency programs and is currently a core faculty member for the EM residency at Summa Health System in Akron, Ohio, where he also serves as the medical director of the Virtual Care Simulation Lab. He's a husband and proud father of three and a rabid, slobbering, card-carrying member of the Bills Mafia. Welcome to the SGM, Mike. Great to be here, Ken. So awesome to be here. I've been uh, I've been listening to you and learning from you for over a decade now, going all the way back to when you were guest hosting pretty regularly on EMA with Jerry Hoffman and Rick Bucata, two guys who I think uh, both of us think of as mentors, even though I've only met them briefly. I mean, I, I spent so much time listening to EMA, and uh, they taught me so much about how to critically evaluate the literature. So I'm super honored to be here uh, with you today, hang out, talk nerdy for a little while. Well, I love talking nerdy and I share your reverence, let's say, for uh, what Rick and Jerry did over the years. I I listened to them and they were foundational in my approach to clinical medicine and critical appraisal of the literature. But you, you need to clarify something for me. I'm I'm not a big sports guy and stuff like that. What is, what is the Bills Mafia? I'm not sure what that references. Uh, how much time do we have here, Ken? Uh, so the the Buffalo Bills is uh, is my, my hometown team. Oh, it's a football team. Yeah, I've, I grew up near Buffalo. Uh, been a Bills fan since I was eight. Suffered through some hard times, but uh, the Bills Mafia is uh, is just a rabid fan base that uh, has been loyal through a lot of hard times and is reaping rewards of that now for the last few years. Uh, we're pretty famous for being very loyal, for being uh, pretty raucous in the parking lot, consuming a fair amount of beer, uh, jumping through tables. Also famous for uh, for being pretty charitable uh, and uh, getting behind some causes, even for our opponents, uh, charitable causes when, uh, when the situation warrants, uh, uh, donating hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars to causes when, uh, when something pops up, usually in very small amounts, uh, but but with thousands of, uh, of donors getting behind it. So charitable partiers, rabid football fans, that's us. Well, I did say I'm not a big sports guy, but you know, I'm from Canada, eh? And so we have the Leafs and uh, the Leafs have not won, you know, Leaf Nation, the Leafs have not won the Stanley Cup since I was born. So 56 year drought, 1967. Are are the Bills suffering that long of a drought from whatever the big award? Oh, you guys have a Super Bowl down there. Yeah, we've never won a Super Bowl. We went to uh, we went to four in a row in the 90s. That was actually the four years that I was in college and lost all four, one of them in pretty heartbreaking fashion, missed a field goal as time was expiring. It was it was pretty rough after the 90s for a while. We had a 17-year playoff drought. And uh, even though I live in Columbus, Ohio, about 300 miles from Buffalo, uh, I own season tickets for 
the last 15 years of that 17 year playoff drought. Uh, so it was a, it was a pretty rough stretch, but we're, we're pretty, we're regulars in the playoffs now that we got uh, Josh Allen playing quarterback. That guy's a stud. Well, we're not the Bill Simmons podcast talking about sports here. See, I know a little bit about sports. Not bad. Not bad. Thank you. Thank you. I I like to know a little bit about things. So (laughs) this is an episode that came up because of a thread you posted on social media, a site formerly known as Twitter. Now it's represented by a symbol, uh, sort of like Prince, I think. (laughs) And in that tweet, you said, quote, I am sick. And tired. Now, the emphasis in my voice has been added, but you said, quote, I am sick and tired of some non-EM doc slash specialist slamming EM when we don't aggressively lower blood pressure in intracranial hemorrhage. End of quote. Well, that vent certainly got a lot of attention. Yeah, sure did. Both on the positive side, uh, mostly from some EM docs who share my frustrations about this, uh, and on the negative side from some neurologists who didn't particularly care for the premise of the tweet uh, or for the generally positive response that it got. It kind of started out with me venting on Twitter about an unpleasant interaction that happened between uh, one of my partners and, one, and a brand new intern. Uh, and I ended up venting on Twitter as opposed to uh, venting in person. Venting on social media isn't always the best idea, but uh, uh, in this case, it generated a lot of attention, generated a discussion, and uh, and led to you giving me a call uh, and offering to do this episode. So occasionally, Ken, it can actually be productive to uh, vent a little bit on social media. Certainly, we all need to vent at some point, but you actually backed up your position on blood pressure lowering using evidence, specifically pointing out the evidence behind the guidelines regarding blood pressure management in intracranial hemorrhage, and that it's relatively weak. What kind of response did you get when you when you got away from, you know, venting and stuff like that and actually just focused on the evidence? What kind of response did you get from physicians on Twitter when you tried to reorient them and focus just on the evidence? Yeah, it was actually a long, it was a pretty long thread that started with venting and then went pretty deep into the evidence uh, and then kind of came back to venting a little bit at the end. But the the response was pretty mixed. Uh, most emergency docs, as I said before, shared my frustrations and made some positive, supportive comments, got a lot of likes. Some neurologists, not surprisingly, disagreed with the premise of the tweet and challenged it, uh, some in a professional way and some uh, not so much. Well, I responded by posting the SGEM 2013 episode on Interact 2, that was SGEM number 73, which showed no statistical difference between intensively lowering blood pressure and the guideline-directed lowering of blood pressure. And then in 2017, the SGEM did a review on the Attach 2 trial, and that was SGEM 172, which showed similar results. Yeah. And if I remember right, Ken, you also posted a meme about some guidelines, didn't you? Yeah. And, you know, um, memes can be challenging and humor and all that kind of stuff. This was a meme of Charlton Heston from the classic movie, The Ten Commandments. And it emphasized that guidelines are not God lines. The literature should inform our care. It should guide our care, but it shouldn't dictate our care. It shouldn't become a thou shalt. And this is a core principle of evidence-based medicine, and often the available evidence on a specific medical question is weak. This is just reality. This is something we have to do. This is the practice of medicine, and we still need to apply our clinical judgment and, of course, ask the patients about their values and their preferences. 
Yeah, yeah. This is one of my favorite Ken Milnisms. If I could, is that a thing? A Ken Milnism? I'm going to go with that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I've been I've been preaching to my residents for almost 15 years now. The guidelines are just that. They're guidelines. They're not a law. Not a requirement. They're a guide. And uh, your guidelines, not guidelines, phrase captures that sentiment really better than anything I've been able to come up with. So uh, I'm here to inform you, Ken. I'm stealing it. Oh, you know, I'm free open access. So whatever I put out there, it's yours to use as you would like. But yeah, guidelines are not godlines. I used to say from the Princess Bride, guidelines? You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. But this is a little bit more brief, you know, really on the nose that they're not, they're not godlines. They're guidelines. 100%. But this all leads me up to inviting you to be a guest skeptic to discuss a new trial that has been published on the topic called Interact 3. So give us a case to frame the episode. All right. So a 67-year-old male presents to the ED obtunded with left hemiplegia. Symptoms started just prior to presentation. His blood pressure is 194 over 110. CT reveals a hemorrhage in the right internal capsule suggestive of an acute hypertensive hemorrhagic stroke. A few questions. First, should the blood pressure be lowered? If yes, what should the target blood pressure be? How quickly do we want to get there? And finally, are there any other physiologic variables that we want to be aggressive about controlling in the early treatment window? Well, as mentioned earlier, we have covered the common issue of elevated blood pressure after intracranial hemorrhage, and that was on SGEM 73 and 172. The 2022 AHA-ASA guidelines give several recommendations on this topic. The class or the strength of the recommendations is 2A or 2B based upon level B and level C quality of evidence. And I'll put a table in the show notes just to provide some details on what class and what level of evidence is used by the AHA. Yeah. And I think it's really important, Ken, to pay attention to the specific language used in these guidelines. First of all, as we've already covered, a guideline is something developed by humans, giving their best interpretation of the evidence to serve as a guide, not something given to Moses on Sinai, right? But that point aside, the basis of this discussion, the basis of that tweet that started this discussion was the strength of the evidence behind the guidelines and the strength of the recommendations in the guidelines themselves that's frequently misunderstood and or misrepresented by our consultants. So let's start with the specific language used in a guideline. Uh, we'll look at them one at a time. First, quote, in patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage in whom acute blood pressure lowering is considered initiating treatment within two hours and reaching target within one hour can be beneficial to reduce the risk of hemorrhagic expansion and improve functional outcome, unquote. Yeah, and they give this a class 2A recommendation of, quote, moderate is reasonable, can be beneficial. Level of evidence is C-LD, limited data. And I would say that it would also be reasonable not to acutely lower the blood pressure. Completely agree, Ken. And based on what's known from previous studies and based on the wording in the guideline itself, I'd agree with that. So next, quote, in patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage of mild to moderate severity presenting with systolic blood pressure between 150 and 220, acute lowering of systolic pressure to a target of 140 with the goal of maintaining in a range of 130 to 150, is safe and may be reasonable for improving functional outcomes. 
Yeah, and this was a class to B recommendation or weak, which may be reasonable, may be beneficial, effectiveness not well established. Level of evidence, BR, and BR stands for randomization, moderate quality of evidence from one or more randomized control trials or a meta-analysis of moderate quality randomized control trials. Now, listeners will have picked up there that the word may was used quite often. And and you know that if the word may is used, it can be substituted. And I learned this from Jerry Hoffman. It can be substituted with the phrase may not. Absolutely. All right. The next recommendation, quote, in patients with spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage presenting with large or severe intracranial hemorrhage or those requiring surgical decompression, the safety and efficacy of intensive blood pressure lowering are not well established. So, yeah, and this is the case that you presented. This was somebody with um, severe intracranial hemorrhage. This is another class 2B recommendation based on weak evidence. So it may be reasonable, may be beneficial. Effectiveness not well established. Level of evidence, C-LD. And remember that LD means limited data. Right. And their recommendation based on that limited data is to say that we don't know. The safety and efficacy are not well established. So reviewing all that stuff, Ken, all of those recommendations, which are quoted directly from the guidelines, does that sound like language describing an intervention that's, quote, a central component of management? unquote, to you, because that's a term that was used in the introduction to the paper. Yeah, no, I don't, I would not interpret that as a central component of management. It doesn't sound like a thou shalt do this, thou shalt acutely lower blood pressure. I think it's, you should consider it. It may be reasonable. You may lower the blood pressure. Um, A lot softer language is what I would have used. Right. But that's not what many physicians believe that the guideline tells us. All you have to do is read the guideline itself to recognize that even the people writing these guidelines, who I would argue are biased toward aggressively treating blood pressure in this scenario, even those people recognize that the answer here is not clear. But when our consultants come to the ED, they frequently act as though it's clear and accepted truth that this is what we should be doing. And I think it's probably somewhat of a human nature to want certainty and that we are uncomfortable with uncertainty. And perhaps those of us who work in the emergency department may or may not be more comfortable with uncertainty because we often have to make really important decisions quickly on limited information and live with that decision. And how can you do that if there's so much uncertainty? You could be paralyzed with indecision. And really good emergency physicians that I work with are not paralyzed by indecision. They make decisions and that make they make those decisions quickly. They are important decisions to make and they don't have the complete picture. And the evidence that informs their position is often weak. So maybe that's why we're more comfortable with uncertainty. But what's the clinical question we're going to try to answer on today's episode? All right. The clinical question is, can the implementation of a goal-directed care bundle incorporating protocols for early intensive blood pressure lowering and management algorithms for hyperglycemia, pyrexia, and abnormal anticoagulation implemented in a hospital setting improve outcomes for patients with acute spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhage? 
So it's pretty important there. This We're talking about a bundle. We're not talking just about this patient's blood pressure and intensively lowering their blood pressure. It comes as a bundle, and we'll get into that. So what's the reference that you have? The reference is MA et al., uh, the third intensive care bundle with blood pressure reduction in acute cerebral hemorrhage trial, or INTERACT-3, an international stepped wedge cluster randomized controlled trial published in The Lancet just a couple of months ago here in 2023. All right, so let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? It was adult patients 18 years of age or older presenting within six hours after the onset of ICH. And they had some exclusions. Uh, They excluded people if there was definitive evidence that the intracranial hemorrhage is secondary to a structural abnormality in the brain or previous thrombolysis. Also, if the attending clinician felt that there was a high likelihood that the patient will not adhere to the study treatment and follow-up regimen, what was the intervention? It was a goal-directed intensive care bundle protocol correcting hypertension, hyperglycemia, pyrexia, and hypercoagulability with the goal of achieving treatment targets within one hour of initiating treatment and maintaining them for seven days or until discharge or death, whichever came first. And again, it's important to recognize that this is a bundle of care. What did they compare it to? They compared it to what they described as usual care at the discretion of the treating physician. All right, let's go through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome? Primary outcome was functional recovery measured at six months, according to the modified Rankin scale, and analyzed as an ordinal outcome, uh, looking at shift across all categories. One thing to point out, though, is that listeners may have noticed that the primary outcome, the time was six months rather than the traditional three months. And the authors state that one of the, quote, efforts to improve the success of randomized control trials in identifying an effective treatment for intracranial hemorrhage have included to extend the assessment of functional outcome beyond the conventional 90 days because recovery from intracranial hemorrhage takes longer than from an acute stroke, end of quote. So that was their rationale for the timeline of six months. And I think that makes some sense. I could buy that. All right. How about their secondary outcomes? They had a number of secondary outcomes. Yeah, they did. So uh, they looked at functional recovery according to a shift analysis of scores on the NIH stroke scale uh, at seven days. Uh, They did a dichotomous modified ranking score at six months looking at Uh, zero to two versus three to six, and also zero to two versus three to five. The difference there being the zero to two versus three to five excludes those that died and just looked at modified ranking among survivors. They looked at death at six months. They looked at death or neurologic deterioration at seven days. Uh, They used the health-related quality of life uh, measure using the EuroQOL group five dimension self-reported questionnaire. That's a mouthful, the EQ5D. Uh, which has been used in multiple stroke trials in the past. They also looked at where the patient was living at the six-month mark, whether they were living at home or somewhere else. Uh, And finally, they looked at time to hospital discharge. And they did have some safety outcomes? Right. They looked at uh, all-cause and cause-specific serious adverse events, uh, and those were recorded for the duration of the follow-up period. And the T of the PCOT is, what type of study was this? So they described this as a pragmatic, international, multi-center, blinded endpoint, stepped wedge cluster randomized control trial. It was conducted in 10 countries uh, and 121 hospitals in those 10 countries. 
So the author's conclusions were, quote, implementation of a care bundle protocol of intensive blood pressure lowering and other management algorithms for physiologic control within several hours of the onset of symptoms resulted in improved functional outcome for patients with acute intracerebral hemorrhage. Hospitals should incorporate this approach into clinical practice as part of active management for this serious condition, end of quote. All right, Mike, we're going to go through the quality checklist for randomized control trials. Let's start with question one. Is this study focusing on those in the emergency department? Yes, it was. Uh, Interventions were to be implemented within six hours of symptom onset and achieved within one hour of initiation. They did maintain a strict physiologic control for seven days or until death or discharge, whichever came first. But the, the primary goal is really initiating treatment in the emergency department. And were you happy that the randomization was adequate? I was. And did they conceal the process that they used to randomize the patients into different groups? They did. And then did they do an intention to treat analysis where they analyzed the groups to which they were randomized? They did. They had some issues with data collection timing uh, due to multiple factors, including enrollment being shut down for about six months due to COVID, and that affected their cluster analysis. Uh, I'm willing to give them a little grace here and accept that the corrections that they made were an honest, legitimate, impartial, and probably effective means to account for something that was really completely out of their control. And the study patients, were they recruited consecutively to avoid selection bias? A little harder to tell here, Ken. Uh, there was there was one subjective exclusion criteria, which you mentioned earlier, that uh, if the treating clinician felt the patient was unlikely to adhere to the study treatment or follow-up regimen. There were a little under 11,000 patients screened with a little under 4,000 patients being excluded, about 35%. The majority uh, of those that were excluded were beyond the treatment window. However, there were 17% that were excluded due to a lack of consent. The patients in both groups, were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? They were. Uh, there was a slightly higher percentage of uh, brainstem, cerebellar, and particularly intraventricular hemorrhages in the usual care group, slightly higher percentages of all four physiologic markers that we were intervening on in the usual care group, but they were, they were pretty close. Yeah, and that can happen with randomization. You get, you get lumpy data. All participants, and when I say all participants, I mean the patients, the clinicians, the outcome assessors, were they masked? Were they unaware of group allocation? They weren't, Ken, but that wasn't really possible given this study design. All groups were treated equally except for this intervention, this bundle. Yes. Was the follow-up complete? Uh, Meeting the criteria or using the criteria of 80% for both groups, yes, there was 88.9%. There was 8.5% that were lost to follow-up, 2.6% that uh, were missing the primary outcome, and these numbers were similar in both groups. And do you think all patient important outcomes were considered? I think they were. And do you think the treatment was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Hard to tell, Ken. There's, there's a lot of issues that we're going to discuss in the Talk Nerdy section that, uh, that, that might have affected that. Oh, I love talking nerdy. Okay, and how about financial conflicts of interest? The authors say that uh, the funders of the study had no role in the design, collection, analysis, or interpretation of the data, no role in the writing of the report. Uh, three of the 42 authors reported competing interests, two of which uh, 
were related to a pharmaceutical company. Those two were the second author and uh, the last or senior author. All right, let's dive into the results here. They did recruit a total of over 7,000 patients from 121 hospitals that could be included in their modified intention to treat analysis. The mean age of patients was 62 years, with just over one-third being female. Most of the patients, and when I say most of the patients, I'm talking more than 90% were Chinese. What was the key result? The odds of a poor functional outcome was lower in the care bundle group compared to usual care. For that primary outcome, that modified Rankin score, can you give us specific numbers? Uh, the odds ratio was 0.86 with a 95% confidence intervals ranging from 0.76 to 0.97. So falling just under that cutoff of one p-value there, 0.015. And uh, this was pretty consistent across all of their adjustments and calculations. And they had a number of secondary outcomes that we we talked about earlier. Do you want to highlight any of them? We'll, we'll put detailed list in the show notes, but are there any that jumped out at you? Most of them did not show a statistically significant difference. Uh, some showed trends in a positive direction that didn't reach the threshold of statistical significance. Patients who received the intervention were statistically more likely to be discharged by day seven. The EQ5D quality of life assessment was kind of a mixed bag, but the effects on this scale diminished when they made the various statistical adjustments in their post hoc analysis. And they did look at safety. So what were their safety outcomes? Safety was good. There were significantly fewer serious adverse, event, adverse events in the bundle care group. All right. This is the part I look forward to. Time to talk a little nerdy. You ready to go, Mike? I got my nerd cap on, Ken. Let's do it. Welcome to the nerd zone. We've got five things we're going to go through. And the first is about external validity. There are several issues to unpack, including the patient population, medication used to lower the blood pressure, and the prevalence of patients being anticoagulated. So that first thing is the patient population, the setting. They included nine low to middle income countries like Brazil, China, India, Mexico, Nigeria, Pakistan, Peru, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, and one high income country, Chile. Now, most of the cohort, like I said, though, you know, they have 10, 10 different sites, 10 different countries, more than 90% of them came from China, and only 3% came from that high-income country, Chile. Yeah, and even that high-income country, Chile, Ken, is pretty different from the United States and Canada. I mean, it's, it's a fraction of the GDP, a fraction of the, of the per capita income. So it is relatively high-income country looking at the rest of the world, but not necessarily to what we're looking at here in North America. Another issue with external validity was the medications used. 61% received urapidil. 21% received nipride, 12% received labetalol, 8% received nicardipine, and another 8% received nimodipine. And you have to ask, how would this data extrapolate to North America, where I'm guessing nicardipine would be a vast majority of the patients, probably 80% of them, and urapidil, the one that was used a majority of the time, wouldn't even be on the radars. It's, it's not FDA or Health Canada approved. And then the third issue under external validity was about anticoagulation. About 1% of the patients in the cohort were anticoagulated. I suspect that this would be much higher in North America. I did a little digging and a 2020 uh, census of the U.S. reported that there are 258 million American adults 
with more than 8 million of them being anticoagulated. So that's 3%. That's three times the amount. And since being on a blood thinner increases the chance of an intracranial hemorrhage, that percentage would probably be higher. And this higher percentage could impact the efficacy of lowering the blood pressure with patients on a vitamin K antagonist or a direct oral anticoagulant. So the the second talk nerdy issue we wanted to address was uh, the bundle care itself. Uh, The bundle treatment included addressing hypertension, hyperglycemia, pyrexia or fever, and hypercoagulability. So the question has to be raised, which part or which parts of this bundle caused the benefit? Well, if you look at the patient population, about 90% had met the marker for what they considered a significant blood pressure elevation. About one third had hyperglycemia and the other markers, uh, fever and anticoagulation was only about one or 2%. So I think it'd be reasonable based on these numbers to assume that blood pressure would be the primary driver of the results, but we really don't know. And we have seen other cases where, quote, the bundle, like the sepsis bundle, didn't ultimately turn out to be better than usual care. They have the ARISE trial, the PROMISE trial, and the PROCESS trial. So we need to be we need to be a little bit more skeptical about bundled care. Right. And they do say that they plan to do a mediation analysis to try to identify the effects of the various components to the bundle, which ones had the impact. And remember, when they're talking about the bundle... This was not a masked trial. People knew which whether they were getting the bundle or not. And so there could have been a Hawthorne effect. Because it was unblinded, the participants and the clinicians knew whether they were getting the bundled care or that they were in the usual care group. Boy, you're pulling in the Hawthorne effect. We really are talking nerdy now, Ken. All right. So the third point is about the outcome assessment. The primary outcome in this trial was an ordinal analysis of the modified rank and scale score. Concerns have been raised about ordinal analyses, and I'll put some links into the show note that Dr. Rory Spiegel has uh, published about this. There are also issues with the modified rank and scale score itself uh, for inter-rater reliability. Scoring of the modified rank and scale even by a neurologist, is only moderate reliable when best done face-to-face. There's a study by Quinn et al. in 2009, and they reviewed 10 studies and reported the overall reliability of the modified Rankin scale had a kappa of 0.46. And I'll just remind people, a kappa goes from 0 to to 1. And if you've got a kappa of 0.46, that is considered moderate. And they concluded, quote, there remains uncertainty regarding the modified Rankin scale reliability. Wilson et al. in 2005 found similar issues with the modified Rankin scale. I will put links to both of those references in the show notes. Now, neurologist Dr. Ravi Garg highlighted that the inter-rater reliability of the modified Rankin scale was lowest at the junction of an MRS of 0 to 1, good outcome, and a modified Rankin score of two to six, bad outcome, leading to what he calls endpoint wobble. I suspect that the wobble is even greater in this trial because the outcome assessment is done via caregivers over the phone 79% of the time. So four out of the five assessments were done over the phone with a caregiver or with the patient 7% of the time, and not face-to-face. Face-to-face evaluation of the primary outcome was done 
less than 1% of the time. Right. The modified Rankin scale is probably the best that we have, and it's what's standard across stroke studies. It's kind of hard to criticize them for using that for the endpoint, but we do have to recognize there are some real issues with the modified Rankin score in general and with the ordinal analysis of the modified Rankin score uh, as well. All right, Ken, ready to move on to the next point? I'm always ready to talk nerdy. All right. The strength of the evidence. So, The people writing these papers and many in clinical practice seem to continue to overstate the strength of the evidence for lowering blood pressure and ICH. It's all over the intro, all over the discussion in this paper. Again, the evidence ranges from weak to flawed to non-existent, and the language of the guidelines reflects that. But the language that's used by the study authors and by many of our consultants in the ED is much stronger than what's justified by the guidelines or what's justified by the data that the guidelines are based on. Yeah, and I really think that the strength of our recommendations, in other words, the language we use, how we portray it, should be proportional to the strength of the underlying primary data. Okay, number five, refused or lost to follow-up. There were 2.6% of the cohort that had missing outcome data, in addition to 8.5% of patients either refused or were lost to follow-up. It was similar between both groups. However, the absolute difference between bundle and usual care for that modified rank and score of zero to two was only 3.6%. All right, that's the nerdy section. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusion and compare them to the SGEM's conclusion. All right, so after reviewing this in pretty good detail, Ken and I disagree with the authors that hospitals should incorporate this care bundle protocol, including intensive blood pressure lowering, into the approach in their clinical practice. The missing data, in addition to the lack of external validity, uh, the use of an unmasked bundled treatment, and reliance on phone assessments using the modified Rankin score with, at best, moderate inter-rater reliability, all leads to more uncertainty about the results. If they had concluded that, based on their findings, implementation of the bundle should be considered, particularly in settings with limited resources and or access to care, I might be able to get on board. Yeah, it's about the strength of their conclusions. Again, if they had said, you know, to consider or may implement, but once, you know as well as I do, once things get set up into the EHR as a care bundle and has a click and check boxes very soon it'll become a quality metric, we'll be judged upon this, and sometimes even our pay will be linked to whether or not we're adhering to this protocol. And so I, I think we need to be much more cautious uh, considering the strength of the evidence. Yeah, and once once that happens, Ken, undoing it is really difficult. We've seen that with sepsis in the United States, where they implemented this protocol and made it a quality marker. And then shortly after the government did that, the very authors of the paper that led to the SERS criteria being labeled as a quality marker gave us a recommendation in sepsis three that said, stop using SERS. But nobody has stopped using SERS because we've set up this massive bureaucracy and this massive system to use it as a quality marker and base reimbursement on it. So here we are almost 10 years after sepsis 3 was published, and we're still using SERS, which the very authors of that trial told us to stop using almost a decade ago. So what we're encouraging listeners to do is let's learn from our history. Let's not repeat uh, errors that have been made before, and let's move forward cautiously based on the strength of the evidence. Agreed. 
How about a bottom line? So intense blood pressure lowering in patients with ICH continues to seem safe as long as we don't overshoot our target blood pressure and cause hypotension, but we're still uncertain if it provides a patient-oriented outcome of benefit. And how are you going to resolve that case you presented at the beginning of the show? Well, our patient, Ken, has a terrible disease. They've got severe symptoms and a marker of disease severity, severe hypertension, that makes his prognosis poor. Unfortunately, despite what some of our consultants might tell us, there's no definitive evidence to inform our management. So we're going to have a conversation with the neurocritical care team that'll be taking care of the patient in the hospital and work out a treatment plan that's mutually agreeable. And so how are you going to take this new information from Interact 3 and clinically apply it in your practice? This study and prior studies give us fairly strong evidence that treating blood pressure in a scenario is safe, and that's reflected in the AHA ASA guidelines. But multiple trials, including this one, have shown either weak proof or no proof of benefit at all. Uh, The 2022 ICH guidelines state that aggressive treatment is, quote, safe and, quote, may be effective for patients with mild to moderate ICH, but, quote, not well established in patients like ours with severe intracranial hemorrhage. They also state that acute lowering of blood pressure under 130 systolic is, quote, potentially harmful. So this language leaves plenty of room for clinical judgment, and the questions surrounding the positive trials, in addition to the publication of other negative trials, including attached to, those things make a conservative approach to blood pressure management at minimum acceptable. And so what are you going to tell the patient? Well, as always, it all depends. Like This is where we earn our money. We're making tough decisions with inconclusive evidence, taking multiple factors into account. I would tell the patient, or in this case, his family, since he's obtunded, that there's some who believe that being aggressive about managing blood pressure is beneficial, but I'm not at all convinced by the evidence, and neither are those who write the guidelines. One thing we can all agree on is that overshooting our target and causing hypotension is harmful. So without definitive evidence to inform our decision, we'll come to the best conclusion and treatment recommendation that we can. All right, that sound means it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner, and we have a repeat winner Scott Luce. Scott knew that the cervical spine collar was invented by George Cottrell. What question do you have for this episode? All right. Nicardipine is a calcium channel blocking drug. When was it patented? So if you know when Nicardipine was patented, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, Mike, this was great having you on the show, and I'm so glad that you put up a tweet. Even if it created a little controversy and stuff like that, I'm less interested in you know the controversy, oh, what did he say, and more interested in how you responded and what took place. And you responded by providing a whole bunch of evidence. And I responded by chiming in on the thread with other evidence that the SGEM has put forth on critical appraisals. And ultimately, we got to be friends and I got to have you on the show. And this has just been a great honor, Ken. Like I said, I've been listening to you and learning from you for, uh, for over a decade. And this has been really cool to hang out and uh, really dive deep into this study and, uh, and all the methodology in it. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. There's only one task left to do, and that is for the guest skeptic, you, to read the SGEM tagline. Now, you said you said something about Buffalo. That's in New York. So am I assuming that you're going to do a New York State accent for this, or are you going to do an Italian accent because of your last name? You choose. 
I think we could do a little bit of a little bit of both. Buffalo is pretty far from New York City, but I think I could still do the Brooklyn thing pretty good. Let's see how we if I could pull this off. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic Guide to Emergency Medicine. Ah, forget about it. No, don't forget about it. Get out of here. Talk to everyone next week. <laughs>